you're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is Bob McLeod, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Epic Marvel Podcast. I am your host, Curtis Findlay. And I'm your New Mutants host, Frank Montini. Frank, this is a, a pleasure to have you on the show. You, This is your first episode with us, and you're going to be hopefully going through every volume of The New Mutants with us here on, on the Epic Marvel Podcast. Yeah, first time. Very happy to be here. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, where are you from, uh, and how did you get into comics? Well, as you can hear, maybe I'm from France, because my accent may betray me, and um, <laughs> I'm 45-year-old, and I've been into comics for over 40 years. In fact, I basically wanted to to, to read because of uh, John Romita's Spider-Man strip, which mm-hmm. I found on my French TV guide. And mm-hmm. uh, that, that's how I got into comics. It came from Spider-Man and then it went snowballing into X-Men and Fantastic Four and uh, later on into DC Comics. But most of, most of all, in the beginning, I'm a really Marvel guy. And uh, well, I, but I grew and and I went into different directions. I have a huge comic book collection at home for the displeasure of my wife, <laughs> and also I write articles maybe once or twice a year for Back Issue magazine. So I've been writing maybe I would say a dozen articles so far, maybe a bit less, ten articles for Back Issue magazine. Well, that's great. We'll have to keep an eye out for those ones. Uh, and being from France, you probably like your comic collection probably extends far beyond Marvel and DC because there's such a wealth of of great comic book material in in Europe. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, I've been into the traditional French stuff or the, what we call the Franco-Belgian stuff. But from my very young age, I must say that the, the comic book was really the main attraction for me, and uh, I always come back to comic books. So nice. even though I, I cover the whole thing, but uh, Really, comic books is the main thing for me. Great. I'm glad to uh, be able to bring your wealth of knowledge and love for the, the medium to the show here. And I'm excited to talk about New Mutants with you. Now, this episode is going to cover the very first volume of the New Mutants epic collection. It's called Renewal. And it's uh, it covers a period of 1980 to 1984. And Frank, can you tell me what is found in this book? What are we going to be talking about today? Well, there's a lot of stuff, actually, because with uh, 520 pages, I think it's the fattest, biggest uh, epic collection. Maybe you can correct me on that, but from all the ones I have at home, and I've been checking, it's the, it's the, the biggest book. Yeah, it's certainly up there, that's for sure. Top, top five, at least. I think Iron Fist might be a little bit bigger, but this one's definitely one of the biggest. Yeah, I checked the two Iron Man by Denisonian Collection and Dark quite big as well, but not as big as, as this one. So it's one of the 
of the best bang for the buck, as you, as you may say. Yep. And we have there, we have the Marvel Graphic Novel 4, which is the, the, the introduction of the New Mutants. Uh, then we have issue 1 to 12. Uh, we had one issue of Uncanny X-Men, which is uh, issue 167, Marvel Team Up 100, Marvel Team Up Annual 6, and the miniseries Magic, so the four episodes of the, of the miniseries. So lots of contents to cover. Yeah, it's quite a it's quite a grab bag. It's uh, and, and it's nice. It's nice to have that variety, but it's also it fits all together because most of them are written by Claremont. I think only one issue here is not Chris Claremont, the annual. But uh, so there's yeah, the annual. there's definitely a continuity. Yeah, the, the only thing, yeah, the, the only difference is the Marvel team of annual is written by Big Man Flow, but otherwise it's whole Claremont and uh, and it really fits together very well. Yeah. Well, uh, what what are some of the things that we need to know going into this book? Like, if you've never read any X-Men, I guess, <laughs> in your life. Well, if you have never read the X-Men before, you're in for a treat, first of all. What is really important is that when the graphic novel starts, uh, the X-Men have been missing for a few months. And that's really important in the in the first few issues of the book that uh, the X-Men have been uh, abducted by the Broods and uh, they are away in space. So Professor X is mourning and uh, and is not into getting a new generation of, uh, of mutants and, uh, and restarting the whole thing over. So that's something of a bit of a context that needs to be known, in my opinion, to, to get into this book. Otherwise, well, you need to know a bit about the Elfire Club because that's one of the main subplots of, of the book. And, uh, and further down the road, it will become very much more important. But I think that's it, maybe, well, at least as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I think that, I think that does it up. That's, uh, the brood is definitely the most important thing to know about before jumping into this book for sure. Um, basically, because all these characters are brand new. So, and they do a good job of, uh, of introducing them at the beginning of this book. The only other thing is that maybe you need to have, well, to read magic, maybe the, the Belasco issue, and I can't remember which uncanny X-Men it can be, but oh, yeah. uh, there's a bit of context there as well. Uh, so it's not really a prerequisite, but it can help to, to read this uncanny X-Men issue. Yeah, it's number 160. Yeah, Yeah, that's a good point. Just before we go on, I want to make mention that um, I got to talk to Chris Claremont and Bob McLeod, both of them, the creators of New Mutants, um, in preparation for this episode. So I'll be sprinkling some audio clips of what they have to say uh, throughout this episode here. And then in the coming weeks, I will release the full interviews for you to hear. So that was a real treat. There's some great insight. Nice to hear from both of the people who are credited as the creators of this team. And you got to speak to Chris Claremont recently as well when you were preparing for an issue of Back Issue magazine. Is that right, Frank? Yeah, actually, uh, I uh, wrote an article about the international aspect of the X-Men, and, uh, and uh, I had the opportunity to exchange by email with, uh, with Chris Claremont, and he gave great insight, uh, and we briefly mentioned the New Mutants as well. Cool. Let's uh, keep on going here. We have a Twitter poll that I put out, and... I said, who is your favorite OG New Mutant? OG, of course, the, the kids use that slang for original gangster <laughs> mutants. So mm. out of the original members of the New Mutants, who is your favorite? And unfortunately, Twitter only allows four options. 
So I said, leave a comment if your answer is Sunspot, but nobody chose Sunspot. <laughs> um, didn't get very many votes for this uh, for this poll anyway. So what what I did get was that no one really cared for Danny Moonstar. They got 0% of the votes. Mm -hmm. Then tied for second place with 25% each is Karma and Cannonball. And then the number one pick is Wolfsbane. People really, really liked Wolfsbane, Rain Sinclair. What would be your pick, Frank? Well, I think that uh, while the Twitter fans were were right because uh, Wolfsbane is one of the, of, I think that for Chris Claremont, Wolfsbane was the, the, a very interesting character because it feels like he knew from the beginning where he wanted to go with that character, mm -hmm. which may not have been the case for the other ones, say for Sunspot, because it's interesting to see how he added layers and layers to the characters and through his family uh, all along the, 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 the first issues. But for instance, for Danny Moonstar, it would take a bit more longer to, to get into the vibe of the character and it would be through the, the Bill Sienkiewicz uh, era that he would get into the character and, uh, and, and develop her. And frankly, I don't know if he really knew what he wanted to do with Karma or the direction he really wanted to take with Karma. And the fact is that Campbell is just your nice guy. So, you know, it's, he, <laughs> nobody cares about trains who arrive on time. So he's just a very good guy in the team and uh, the reliable one. So that may be why, that may be the reason why people didn't like him uh, as much. My pick is actually Danny Moonstar. I, I actually really like how she's portrayed in, in here, in this book, and especially going into Bill Sienkiewicz's run. She just has a, a, a very different personality than the other ones she's not afraid to you know speak her mind and and get her hands dirty and but at the same time she struggles with this these inner demons that are haunting her and, and i like that that aspect of the character she puts out a, up a good front and uh and yeah mm -hmm. especially once we get into the demon bear saga which will be in uh, volume two uh it's just it's great she's a good character uh, and by the way speaking of the demon bear area and the bill sinkiewicz Days, uh, we are very lucky in France because we will have the equivalent of an omnibus book covering all the Bill Sinkiewicz issues uh, to be released this month in France. And uh, I'm really looking forward to it because all, it will be all the issues packaged together in a great looking book for 40 bucks. Wow, that's great. Yeah, I can't wait till yeah. that uh, comes out in the Epic Collection because it's just beautiful beautiful art and a very very compelling story that one and the the, the legion story is just incredible so yeah mm -hmm. really looking forward to that and i'm looking forward to when we get to talk about that those issues as well you and i that should be really cool too well without further ado why don't we jump into our issues starting with Marvel Team-Up number 100, and um, I'd never read this issue before, so I was like, why are they starting with Marvel Team-Up number 100? Why wouldn't they start with the graphic novel number four? But then we quickly, I quickly realized, oh, it's to introduce the character. So this one, Marvel Team-Up 100, the, the basic plot is that Spidey is possessed by a mutant named Karma, who uses him to save her two siblings. Uh, but the Fantastic Four happened to be there during that when Spider-Man attacks and they figure out everything, work together, and 
karma eventually realizes that what she's doing is not right. So they all work together to save the siblings and take down bad guys. This is very early Frank Miller. Um, he's the co-creator of, of Karma with Chris Claremont. It, this this was actually a pretty good issue. I really enjoyed it. I loved the, the fact that it tied into um, the Vietnam War, which had just ended five years before this issue came out. So it was very new and and Karma and her siblings are boat refugees that are, have escaped the, 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 the war out there and have come to try and start a new life and seek some sort of safety, I guess, from her uncle. Mm-hmm. Uh, or from her brother, sorry. Her brother is the one who's... Uh... Yeah, but he's working for his uncle. Right. For their uncle, I think. Or well, it's someone that we will see further in the, in the, in the book, in the main book. Yeah, yeah, it's the uncle. Um, and yeah, she, and the uncle comes up later in one of the issues later on, for sure. Did you enjoy this issue? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's two years before the the, the original graphic novel, and uh, so it's very early Frank Miller stuff. So always nice. I think it's, it's Spider Man is incredibly dy- dynamic, and uh, that's a great issue. And uh, I love the way he, he stretches Mister Fantastic, for instance, and he does ver- things very differently than a lot of artists on the on the Fantastic Four. I think. I feel like there's definitely a Steve Ditko influence in the way yeah. he draws and in the way he sets up his panels, and especially in his, his Spider-Man action. There's so much of a Ditko feeling in this, and it just reminds me of um, of Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man number one, when the Fantastic Four are there. Uh, yeah. There's just so, it's so familiar, and I feel like Frank studied Ditko a lot. Uh, for this issue. Definitely. You can see that on page 26, 27, 28. There's a brawl between the Fantastic Four and uh, and Spider-Man and really looks great. And there's very dynamic art there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yes, there are definitely a disco influence. And what do you think of Karma herself, her, the character? The powers uh, she has are very, very different because we have seen people who can mind readers and stuff like that. But it's actually possession of, of someone's mind and uh, uh, and we would see in the graphic novel that when she takes over someone's personality they cle- they clearly forget whatever has happened so they have absolutely no knowledge of what's happening there when they are possessed by karma so that's uh, for me that's a very interesting aspect uh, because when the characters are taken over by karma or her brother they act completely differently. And uh, so it was a very interesting aspect, I think, of the book. Yeah, it's not just mind control. It's so much more than that. She she mentally takes on um, everything about the person that she's possessing. In fact, uh, yeah. if the person that she's possessing is hurt, then she gets hurt. There's there's mm. this uh, this huge connection between the two, the two whatever she's possessing. Yeah, it's an interesting, an interesting take on on that side of uh, power, and I don't think they say. Do they say in here that she is a mutant in this issue? No, I don't think so. I'm not sure actually. I can't remember if they mentioned um, that or not. No, because they they never mention in the end what they are going to do with her, and uh, actually she pops up in the graphic novel. But sometimes when a new mu- mutant appeared. In a book, they would say, "Okay, we are going to take you to Charles Xavier, and uh, he will take care of you, or something like that." Because that's something I've read in the past, but not in this case. So, actually, they do call Xavier 
there is a, a brief cameo of the X-Men in this issue um, because when, oh. when Reed is checking out Spider-Man, uh, checking out his mind, uh, let's see, what page is this? On page 16, mm-hmm. he takes a quick call to Xavier oh, yeah. um, because he's uh, an expert on on the human mind, basically. And then he uses his Cerebro system to, to find Shan and her brother. So I guess if Cerebro's picking, her, picking them up, then they've got to be mutants, right? Why don't we move right on to graphic novel number four. And right before you give the description of this issue, I'm going to play two clips. One of Chris Claremont talking about the creation of this graphic novel and then another one of Bob McCloud talking about it as well. Basically, the, the first X-Men graphic novel was, was always meant to be God Loves, Man Kills. Okay. The X-Men canon graphic novel, I should say. And if I'd had my way... If we'd done a New Mutants graphic novel, I would have tried to define it in those terms, do a graphic novel that was totally unlike the series, but would be as a standalone, if you'd ever only read one New Mutants story in your life, this would be it. However, one of the realities of publishing in those days is it is the ultimate epitome of Murphy's Law. Whatever could go wrong did go wrong. And in that case, (laughs) a graphic novel that they'd committed to that had been that space had been blocked into the printing commitments of the company didn't arrive. Uh Oh, and so we had to, we had literally to slam together the new mutants graphic novel in something like two months. I had just penciled an issue of the X-Men just prior to that X-Men 152 that uh, the editor and Chris Claremont liked, and they actually offered me, the job of penciling the X-Men because the penciler had just left the series. Maybe it was Paul Smith at that time had just left the series and um, they were looking for somebody. But then they said, you know, we also have this spinoff that we have uh, in mind uh, and you could be co-creator on that. You know, which one would you prefer? Sounds like a hard decision. Yeah. What a great offer, right? Yeah. X-Men was hot at the time, of course, and I, I really wanted to draw the X-Men. Yeah. And I didn't know that this uh, spinoff book was going to go anywhere or um, last very long or whatever. So it was a very tough decision. But, you know, I figured how often am I going to get the chance to be a co-creator mm-hmm. on a new series? Uh, so, you know, I, I kind of couldn't turn that down. So tell me about drawing this graphic novel. Was this a, a challenge for you to to draw something so long it's much longer than a regular issue yeah it was a big problem the the situation was it was originally going to be a comic book and uh we were not even scheduled i would have had months to do my my very best work on it and um it was my first regular penciling assignment Um, before that i had just penciled some fill-ins and um, i wasn't really ready to just kind of knock out pages quickly I needed time to think about my layouts and my storytelling and everything. So I had only penciled maybe, I forget, a handful of pages for the first issue when um, they approached uh, Louise and Chris, I I guess. uh, They were starting up the graphic novel line, and they were looking for projects to turn into graphic novels. And this seemed like an ideal fit um, since we were just starting on it. And, um, you know, we could easily... expand the story and and turn it into a graphic novel so chris basically 
just expanded the plot a little bit. And um, I started working on it as a graphic novel. But the graphic novels were on a different schedule. You know, they had to be produced at a certain rate. And suddenly, from having all the time in the world, I was a month behind schedule. Oh, no. Oh, no. With actually more pages to draw. Right. Wow. They immediately said, well, we're going to have to give this to somebody else to ink it because you're not going to have time to ink it. And I said, oh, no, <laughs> it's a graphic novel. you got to let me ink it. Yeah. So, I mean, the inking was very important to me because I had a history of doing so much inking. I, you know, I think the inking's uh, kind of vital to the look of a book. Yeah, I managed to talk them into letting me ink it, but I had to ink it through my honeymoon. No way. <laughs> yeah, I had to happen to get married at the same time. Well, it doesn't show really. No, that's what I said. Uh, I said that too. I said that to Bob. I said that it it still looks great. And, and he says that when he looks at it, he just sees <laughs> the flaws and how rushed it was. But that's a typical artist response. Mm, of course. But I think, yeah, it's just, it's spectacular. Bob McLeod is a fantastic artist. Oh, yeah. And he did his own inking for this. And uh, so it's a it's definitely a realized vision. Um, why don't we move on then and give us a description of what this graphic novel is about? Marvel gra uh, graphic novel four, written by Chris Claremont and uh, drawn by Bob McLeod. It's a great looking book, uh, honestly. And I'm really surprised to 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 hear that it was planned as a a basic or a classic monthly issues because the 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 art is fantastic and the coloring is absolutely stunning as well. I think the the coloring especially stands out compared to what we will see in the rest of the of the book. So maybe they devoted a bit of extra time for that when they produced the graphic novel, but really the yeah. color stand out. Well, the graphic novel had the benefit of being a full process color book rather than just a standard yeah. four color process that the, the monthly issues were in. So yeah, we definitely get a more dynamic look uh, with the colors. We have natural kind of shading and a lot more attention is put into the graphic novel for sure. And they pulled it off in two months. Wow. Well, coming back to, to, to the story itself, the first half of the, of the book is about the introduction of each character. So we start with Wolf Baines or Rain Sinclair. Then we have Roberto da Costa and Spot, and then moving on to Cannonball and so on. So we see the introduction of each character. What is really interesting here is that we see that each character has its own voice and its own personality. What is really, for me, what is really interesting is to compare uh, this first issue of the of first mutant book, new and young teenagers mutants compared to the original X-Men. Uh, and we see that compared to the, the, the 60s kind of characters that the X-Men were, we see there's a voice, a different personality, a different take uh, on teenagers. And they, they really have their own, their own vibe, I would say. And that's very interesting to, to, to read. And that's very good writing by Claremont, in my opinion. So what is interesting is that we, we go almost all over the world to, to discover uh, these new mutants. So Scotland for Rain, Brazil for, for Roberto, and the US as well, uh, of course, for Moonstar, Danny Moonstar and, um, uh, and Sam Guthrie. And uh, actually, karma is already established uh, or is already there when uh, Rain Sinclair is brought 
to uh, Moira, uh, Moira's, Moira's lab. The main villain of the book, uh, so it, it, there's a lot of content there because you have to introduce your characters and you have to, to, to give a coherent story. So the main story is that the cyborg, Donald Pierce, wants to use Charles Xavier to take over the Hellfire Club and he wants to use these newfound mutants as bait to abduct uh, Charles Xavier and, uh, and well, proceed with his, uh, with his plan. So that's the main plot of the, of the book. And throughout this plot, we discover each character and we see the origin of each character, how they discover their power or their powers of, or how their powers uh, initiated, I would say. That, that's really neat because you, you get all that plus very good story in 64 pages. Yeah, yeah. What is really interesting, because I have a teenager at home, so I have a, daughter, a 16-year-old daughter, and I think that's something that Claremont writes really, really well, is teenager anger. And the fact that they are quite impulsive, it's very truthful, honestly. One of the things I liked most as well is the fact that throughout the book, they discover their powers. So sometimes they fail. They have power failures all the time uh, because they need training. They need to deal with their power. They have to discover the limits of their powers. And that's something we hadn't read in a very long time when it came to mutants or new heroes in general. So that was very, very interesting. And what is also very nice is the fact that throughout the book, uh, Sam Guthrie is on the wrong side and gets into the team at the very last page. And with those last pages, when the team gets together, we see how the dynamic of the book is going to work with who's more of a, a strong personality and some are more withdrawn and so on and so forth. So that's really, really neat. And uh, by the end of the book, so the team is operational and ready to to get into training and they get uniforms which are like the original expense uniforms mostly with some slight one main difference that they are not wearing any mask like the original expense so hmm. by the end of the book they get ready for training and uh, well the book is ready to be launched actually yeah i think you uh hit the nail on the head a lot a lot of these things i feel like this is chris claremont's x-men number one basically if he had the opportunity mm. to write x-men number one this is the way he would do it. And the way, like you said, he just has a way better pulse on on how to write teenagers. Because Stan's teenagers were so kind of happy-go-lucky, 60s beat-talking teenagers. Yeah. And um, it was just such a different style of writing, which I think probably influenced it. But um, But just, yeah, they didn't really act a whole lot like your typical teenager and maybe that's just because i don't know what being a teenager in the 60s was like compared to being a teenager in the 80s in the grunge era it might have been a lot more different mm. the other thing is that i feel like the whole point of new mutants is acceptance mm -hmm. uh, they and like you said they constantly make mistakes but they accept each other's mistakes and accept people for who they are and you can see that when you when you mention that Cannonball is a bad guy for this entire issue, uh, right in the very last page, he says, hey, I realize I was wrong. Can I come in? And they're like, of course you can. Absolutely. And we see that over and over again um, when they are accepting new people. Mm. 
and even with Magma, with Ilyana, with Warlock later on, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter who they are or what they've done in the past, they are welcome in the team um, to help better themselves and better the world. Mm. On a completely unrelated uh, aspect, that's not how soccer looks like. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. So just for the record, just for the record, because that's absolutely not how it looks like in real life. Right. And nobody gets into a brawl on a, on a soccer field during a during a game. That's that's for sure. Even though it's a clever plot uh, twist to to trigger uh, Sunspot's power, but that's not the way it works in real life. And also, very very importantly, because I need to set this one straight. That's not how French people or French-speaking people speak in general when they speak English. Honestly, <laughs> being French, when you read comic books in English, you're always like, why do they keep on adding French words in the in the dialogue just to make it sound French? Because that's not how we do it, really. <laughs> when we speak English, we speak English. That's all. Yeah, that seems to be a very common thing in doesn't matter whatever language they're doing it. Uh, like when when Colossus talks, he'll have little Russian words here and there in his speech. Yeah, you're too rich. And uh, same mm. with Nightcrawler, will slip in a German word here and there. Just to, I think it's just used to remind us that these people are of um, of an international quality, because otherwise we would, in our own minds, especially if we are just typical English speaking people, mm. we would just read them in a normal English voice. So this helps us keep I... in context that these people. Do do come from another country? Yeah, I, I I mentioned that with Chris Claremont when we when we exchanged for that article and uh, and I said you don't write them as Canadian stereotype or Irish stereotype or something like that and he said no because I don't care really uh, he said that the the only thing he was using was this small bits of local language just to remind people but he said for me they are not international they're just personalities and that's what's really important for me Uh uh-huh yeah that's a very interesting take yeah very interesting and funnily i don't know if you have read wolverine and kitty pride miniseries by chris clamont and al milgram but in it we discover why all the x-men and all the mutants speaks uh english fluently oh really Yeah, because, uh, well, the story takes place, the miniseries takes place in Japan, and Kitty Pride says, uh, fortunately, Professor Xavier taught me Japanese, so I can speak. No way, really. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I read that in the first few pages, and I was like, yeah, that's clever. That's how they all speak English. Because he just puts puts it in their mind, I guess. Yeah, Yeah, somehow, yeah. Well, you got to explain it somehow, kind of like a universal translator in Star Trek. Yeah. I think the other important part, we're spending a lot of time talking about this one issue because it's it's the most important issue, I think, in this book here. Um, but there we didn't really mention the multicultural aspect of these characters. I, I can play a clip of Claremont talking about uh, coming up with the concept of these characters. The limiting factor of both X-Men and new X-Men was Stan's paradigm in 1962, when he was thinking all this up, was classic comic books. In other words, a bunch of white middle-class people, one of whom was a girl. <laughs> right. And the differentiation between the people, between the characters was that 
One was maybe urban, one was rural, one was big, one was not so big. The new mutant, the new the new X Men, was a broader spectrum in that Nightcrawler was from Germany, Colossus was from Russia, Aurora, aside from being the only girl at that time, the only female, was from Africa. Thunderbird was from uh, the American Southwest. Uh, Wolverine was from Canada. Okay, that's a slightly more, a slightly broader and more international template, but still relatively limited in terms of possibilities. With the New Mutants, the intent from the get-go was to push that paradigm as far as we could get away with. So, again, bearing in mind we're talking 1979, 1980, when the backstories were all set. In terms of Sean, Karma, she's a Vietnamese boat person, a refugee right. from the war. Very topical okay. at the time, yes. Yeah, especially since she debuted in, in Marvel Team, Team Up. Up Annual, yeah. brilliantly portrayed by Frank Miller. Her whole life structure is built around the, the trauma of immediately post-Vietnam War. Uh, so we have her. We have Danny Moonstar, an American Indian. We have Rain Sinclair, a Scots werewolf. Right then, we, we are establishing a new trope because half the team are female. Right. Then we have Sam Guthrie, who's, yes, he's American, but he's from West Virginia. He's poor um, white American, yeah. which no one had seen before, really. Then we have Berta da Costa, Bobby da Costa, who's the rich kid on the team, but he's Brazilian, worse than that. He's Brazilian mixed race. Right. It's a, an amazing mix of people. Oh, and then in fairly short order, we, we bring in Magma, who, again, outwardly appears European, but in reality, she's mixed race, Europe, ancient Roman slash Inca. The intent was with both X-Men and, but to much, a much more significant extent, New Mutants, to broaden the the genetic variety of the cast as much as humanly possible because for me that was what made it so much fun i think the cannonball story is dramatic really yeah because when you you read that page i mean page 43 is really wow <laughs> you read that this guy is going to work in the mine and uh, because his father died and his mother can cover the bills and uh, well, it's Peter Parker all, all over again, but there he's 16 and he's working in the mine. So it's really, uh, it's quite a dramatic page, really. It is. Yeah, and it, mm. it sets the tone for his character. Like, he doesn't take things for granted. Like, Roberto has such a, a flippant attitude towards so much because he does come from a wealthy family. Yeah. So there's definitely that that dichotomy there yeah and and his portrayal of of a native american character as well is is quite nice it's very different from thunderbird yeah. when he appeared in the in giant size x-men uh this one is a little bit more respectful and closer to i guess an actual first nations or native american character mm. well why don't we uh keep on moving because uh we spent a lot of time on yeah. that one so let's go right over to new mutants number one Issue number mm -hmm. one, initiation. So this issue, I think they told me that it was just two months after the graphic novels when the, the series launched. And so, yeah, we have now 
the very first issue where they're all together in the mansion hanging out but then psych accidentally shows karma's most painful memory uh it just kind of manifests that's her power is that she's able to uh, project images of people's either their desires or their fears and uh, and that sets the tone of this book right off the bat like these are not perfect people they get mad at each other shan is incredibly angry that mm. uh, that danny did that and uh, it looks like the team could easily split up at this point <laughs> right in the first few pages of the book but they persevere and uh, the rest of the, the issue is a training exercise in the danger room which reminds me a lot of early X-Men issues doing their training training montages and that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I thought it it reminded me of Kitty Pride's uh, first tryout in the Danger Room as well. Yeah, yeah. It, it's something that the X-Men kind of have gotten away from since they're now all experienced superheroes now. They don't have those training exercises as much uh, in the Danger Room. So that was nice to see. There are a few uh, little teases here, like we see a little bit of Henry Peter Gyrick in, in mm -hmm. the car. It's setting up a plot that's coming up in the next issue. And we get the first mention of David Holler, who plays a very important role, like 20, 25 issues down the road. Um, but we get, mm -hmm. we get to meet him in this first issue here. What are your thoughts on this issue? Did, did it kind of get off to a good start? Yeah, what I find really interesting is that they're hanging around the mansion and they are discovering the rooms of the, the X-Men. So they are discovering these people and wondering if those people are mutants. And, uh, you know, when uh, Danny discovers Storm's place with all the plants that need watering and so on, it, it, it's a very human aspect of the story. And uh, somehow it feels like the the the, the X-Men have been missing for in comic book time for six months. So who knows how long it it means in terms of real time or Marvel time. But uh, it looks like the, the, the mansion hasn't changed and hasn't moved and that Xavier has left it exactly the way they it was when they, they were kidnapped uh abducted by the by the broods. So that's very uh, there's some touching moments in that first issue. And mm -hmm. the fact that Steve is here as well is always nice. Yeah. Uh, so we also see in the David Haller issue, we also see Ileana. She's with Moira uh, and she's old, uh, like 14 years old rather than eight years old um, because she's already gone through the, the limbo storyline that happened before. So just a little worth yep. making that note there. But uh, yeah, let's keep on plowing through. How about issue number two? So same team then for issue one uh, with Mike Gustovich as Inca, which is a nice uh, addition to to the to Bob McLeod. It's a different take on uh, on Bob McLeod, but I think it's really interesting. There's a lot of content in that issue, but um, the, the 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 first part, the the first plot is really Danny being trapped in the danger room, and we see. A brood appearing uh, when she's trapped there, and it's a subplot that we would see being developed two issues down the road. Then we have some the rest of the team doing some classic uh, teenager stuff. They are hanging out uh, at the mall. They are meeting with Paul, uh, with other teenagers, and something which is very nice also on page 114 is that we discover how old they are. So we know that Shan is 19, so she's way older 
than the others. Uh, Sam is 16, Rain is 14, and Roberto is only 13. That, that gives us something on the characters that uh, I think we didn't know before. And we know that through kind of subplot that is going to run through a very, very long time, uh, with the Elfire Club being interested in the new mutants, as well as the government through S.H.I.E.L.D., so Henry Peter Garish uh, is back there, and they want to uh, abduct or kidnap the mutants, and uh, uh, they are sending sentinels to, to grab them. And uh, most of the issues is a brawl between the new mutants, uh, doing a pretty good job at beating up sentinels. And on top of that, Claremont is adding a lot of content that and backstory that is brought for, from Miss Marvel, for instance, with Colonel Rossi being uh, being on the book. So there's a, a lot of things um, happening there. And uh, so, long story short, then he gets out. Um, the New Mutants defeat the Sentinels, doing a very, very, very good job once again. And in the end, the federal agents that were plotting the whole thing get get arrested. While the last panel is a brood queen over Charles Xavier's shoulder, which shows that uh, nasty things are going to take place. <laughs> yes. So you brought up Michael Rossi, and I thought that that cameo yeah. was a little on the pointless side. I wasn't exactly sure why he was brought in. Well, I know that Chris Claremont was writing Miss Marvel before, so he was there. But really, I don't know why he, he was added, because he was, I guess that he was obviously government. So maybe sort of a counterbalance to the fact that S.H.I.E.L.D. is trying to use Sentinels, which is weird in the first place. But not much more, I think. So Miss Marvel, that's the Carol Danvers Miss Marvel, is that right? Yeah. And she becomes binary? So that was before. Claremont was writing the, the book before uh, she became binary. And even, well, first of all, there was a Miss Marvel book written for a while by Cliff Claremont and drawn by Carmina Infantino. Then there was the Avengers Annual with Rogue killing Miss Marvel's powers. Right. And then she becomes binary during Uncanny X-Men 165, I would say, something like that. It's the end of the Brood saga. Binary is in the issue, the X-Men issue that we have in this collection. Yeah. And I don't know if... Um, we don't see Michael Rossi and her interact at all, but um, maybe they do in a different X-Men issue. I can't remember really, because I think that Binary sort of joins the team in Uncanny X-Men. Uh, when she gets her powers during the Brood saga, then she's part of the team for a few issues, including 167, which is in the book. And then when Rogue joins the team a few issues down the road, so that would be... 170, I would say, binary leaves. So I don't remember Colonel Rossi meeting with with Carol Danvers then, but maybe Claremont was trying to get those characters together again. That could be, yeah. I just thought it was a little pointless here, but uh, but yeah, it, this was a good issue. I really enjoyed the, the teamwork in the Sentinel mm. story part. I, I felt like you could already see sort of where the natural leaders were and kind of where their positions were on the team. And it just reminded me of the very first episode of the X-Men cartoon in the 90s when Jubilee's in the mall mm -hmm. and is attacked by Sentinels. Um, I feel like with the writers for that show were taking a little bit of a page out of New Mutants number two here <laughs> for, for that one. Mm -hmm.
Actually, I never saw that. I didn't. I don't think I have ever seen that cartoon because it wasn't shown in France oh, okay. or very late. Yeah. So I'm not familiar at all with the cartoon, which is strange for you guys, I guess. <laughs> well, go and check it out. It's a lot of fun. Mm. I, I feel like the Sentinels are actually a really good first villain for them to to tackle because they don't really have any um, overall motivation or, or, or big plan. They're just big robots. Uh, so... Mm they can attack without fear of injuring or killing anybody um, because they haven't learned how to control their powers yet. So they can still battle with their raw untamed powers and, and not get in any serious trouble for it. So yeah, it, and it, it was good action. Bob McLeod does a good job of staging out the fight, the battle, and mm. showing off everybody's powers. No, it's a nice issue, really. Yeah. Um, okay, well, let's move on to number three. Uh, this issue is called Nightmare. And uh, after being attacked in the danger room, Danny keeps having reoccurring nightmares of various different kinds, including one of a, a giant bear, which plays a, most people know, plays a big role, uh, I don't know, over a dozen issues down the road. Uh, and then the team, she pulls the team together for a secret meeting, but then gets pulled into... Uh, a strange world, an apparition created by Danny, but influenced by the Brood Queen. And uh, uh, and, and the, the children have to figure out a way to get out of that weird world that they're in. And this is a new aspect of Danny's powers that we haven't seen yet. Of course, there's only been three issues, so we haven't really seen a whole lot of her powers. But yeah, she can manifest um, these types of places as well, apparently. Banshee makes a cameo. And yep. uh, has a nice conversation with Ileana. I feel like Chris Claremont really likes playing the long game with his writing and his storytelling. Uh, and this is another. This is one example of uh, same with the Demon Bear example of not being told about what's going to happen with that for several issues. Um, here she talks about uh, her time in limbo mm. and mentions and what she did and what she did and she mentions that um storm was there with her but we at this point when this was published the magic mini series was still several months down the road it hadn't been published yet yep. so we're just getting a little bit of a tease of what she experienced in in limbo and uh, we don't really know anything about it other than this something which is really nice and i forgot to mention that earlier because we see sam shaving in this issue which is always which is a funny thing considering he's 16 so it may be the second time he's shaving actually <laughs> but what is really nice about the characters is that they don't look like mini adults they have really teenagers shapes yeah and um you can see roberto is a bit is a bit tall for a 13 year old boy but otherwise they have really, and especially the women, they don't look like mini adults at all. Like they would look in the future and and in the nineties. So um, I think it's a, it's quite an interesting also aspect of the book that uh, teenagers look like teenagers. Yeah, it's really well done. They don't have the typical body proportions. Um, yeah, Sam is long and gangly, and he has got big mm. ears. <laughs> And Rain especially definitely looks her age. She definitely looks the youngest. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 really nicely done. And like you said, yeah, not every artist knows how to draw children. And so the, when we see when we do get an artist that does it, like that's they they really hit the jackpot. And I I think a good example is 
in the Marvel Team-Up annual issue with Cloak and Dagger, which is drawn by Ron Friends. And he does a good job of keeping the style looking similar in the kids, but then Dagger is supposed to be around the same age as as all of the New Mutants kids, but she looks like she's in her mid twenties. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But uh, for for me, uh, because I I read those issues, the Bill Mantlo Spectacular Spider-Man issues, not so long ago, and really, it never occurred to me that Cloak and Dagger were younger, right? Were teenagers, because for me they looked twenty uh, something. Yeah, they always always did. Yeah, exactly. Mm. But yeah, they're supposed to be, um, I don't know, 15 or 16 or something like that, right? can't remember. Yeah, yeah, like uh, something. I, I would say teenagers, uh, for sure, because they are, that's the whole story is all about uh, abducting teenagers to try drugs on them, and that's the, the topic of the annual as well. Yeah. Oh, well, let's talk about the annual more later uh, and get yeah. back to this issue here. So yeah, we have um, the, the brood is really uh, taking hold of the situation here and, and is wants to attack the children and plant their eggs inside the children so that they will become broods themselves. It's kind of like how they keep their species going. So mm-hmm. we find out that the whole point... Oh, we don't know this exactly yet, but uh, we don't know why this is happening, but we know that the brood are still on Earth. They're not all in outer space uh, with the X-Men like we thought that they were. So let's uh, keep on plowing through here. Yeah, well, the next issue is Uncanny X-Men 167, where the X-Men return from the the Brood War, or the Brood Saga, as we call it, and they've been missing for quite a while, and they attack the, the mansion in the first two pages, and they discover that the Brood Queen who attacked the New Mutants in the issue before is actually Professor Xavier, who was actually implanted, that would be the word, becomes a brood queen, who has become a brood queen, and attacked the kids in issue one and in issue three as well. That, that That's the setup of the issue. There's a lot of stuff taking place there. In the first three pages, we see the opposition between the X-Men, which are trained superheroes, uh, with the kids trying to, to survive and not understanding what's happening there, trying to make the most of their powers to, 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 to fight with, uh, with those super-trained heroes. So that's, that, that's very interesting. So the rest of the issue is more of a fight between the X-Men and the Brood Queen with the support of the New Mutants. And in the end of the issue, they find a solution to, to save Charles Xavier because his brain is still there, his mind is still there in the Brood Queen. So they clone his body from a DNA sample, sample and they re-inject his brain patterns into the into this new cloned body. That's all that in 22 pages. And plus, there is a subplot with the Fantastic Four book, uh, which will lead to the trial of, uh, of Reed Richards in the Fantastic Four book. A lot of great characterization with Storm, with Cyclops and, and his father having nice moments with Colossus and Iliana and uh, being joined and. Uh, so there's a huge amount of content in, in this issue. It's a fantastic issue, really. Yeah. Uh, the art is great because Paul Smith is one of the top five best X-Men artists ever. 
And well, I've got nothing but praise for this for this story. <laughs> it's a very, very important issue just in X Men history in general. Yeah. And it yeah, like you said, there's so much content. You pack in not only the conclusion to the brood storyline with the new mutants, but also the brood storyline with the X Men. They return to Earth, the Star Jammers are here, Gladiator, mm. the Fantastic Four make a cameo. Professor X gets a new body. Oh, and what we didn't mention is that because he has a new body, uh, it's not broken. He can't walk. So he can walk yeah, again. Well, so. But he can't walk. But he can't walk. Yeah, I like how they've explained that because his mind is so used to him not walking that he's sort of forgotten how to use his, his legs. So he can't. He has to stay in the chair anyway, at least for a little while. And then in the conclusion, he also tells Kitty Pry that she needs to join the new mutants because she's the same age. Yeah, as and we would have loved to have this, this this Professor Xavier is a jerk story added as a bonus. But yep. of course it doesn't fit, but it's such a fantastic uh, one issue. Yeah, they give us a little text recap in this epic collection about what happened in that issue just to bring us up to yep. speed. But yeah, there's literally no room for this issue here. This This book is as big as it is already. I asked Chris Claremont about uh, what it was like writing both of these books at the same time because of the interplay between the two storylines. So I'll play a little clip of that here. It made for a richer tapestry. Yep. And they, it was interlinked because they live, they basically live in the same compound, the school. And there, there is a measure of interaction, but both series existed independently of the other. One could read new mutants and not read the X-Men. One could read the X-Men and not read new mutants. Right. It's just, if you wanted to read them both, ideally, from my perspective as a creator, I wanted you to read them both. It gave you a more fulfilling vision of the scene, the characters, the world they live in, but it wasn't necessary. The key difference between the two was the X-Men's role in life was to save the world, which they did with ridiculous frequency. Yeah, right. The New Mutants was just to learn their, their abilities. They were not ever intended conceptually to be superheroes. It's just that circumstances kept throwing them into situations where they had to become superheroes. I feel, though, that this issue sort of contradicts the clip that I just played. Because if you don't read this issue and you just skip on mm -hmm. to issue number four, all of a sudden everything with the brood is done and you have no idea why. Xavier makes a yeah. brief mention that, oh, over the past few months, I've been taken over by the brood. My mind has been influenced. But that's it. So you really do need to read these two issues together. And this is not the only instance where where New Mutants and X-Men uh, really interact and really uh, play off of each other, especially because we see mm -hmm. Kitty and Doug Ramsey later on they they flop between the two books as well. Yeah. You really do benefit at this uh reading both of them as one long continuous story between the mm. two books. Well, especially, you know, funnily in France at the same time, the the way the, the X-Men were translated was a huge mess. And the, they, I think that the new mutants were translated before they get to the point where so it was impossible to understand what was happening. Oh there. no. Really? Yeah, it was it was really really a big mess. They had to jump like fourteen issues, you know, in the X Men magazine, just to catch up 
with the new mutants so that it would make sense overall because otherwise it would have been completely impossible to get what was happening here and there. Wow, really? But wow. it's been it's always been yeah, for a very long time it wasn't the, the French translations were a mess. Typically how far behind does the issue get to France translated? Currently we are six months behind, like most of Europe. Well, okay. not English versions. So that's fine so that's fine, but in the past it was I think that uh, Gwen Stacy died in 74 and the book was translated in 79 in France, so five years after. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So th this kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay, issue number four is called Who's Scaring Stevie? And Stevie's a character we haven't really mentioned yet. She is kind of like the only teacher at the school um, other than Xavier himself. And she's just kind of the dance teacher and, and also teaches them kind of just life things, takes them on trips and that kind of thing, just watches out for them. Did she, do you know, did she appear before New Mutants came out or was she created? Yeah. She, okay, she's been around for a while. Yeah, she she, she appeared uh, with, I guess, Kitty Pride. So that would be around Uncanny X-Men one uh, one forty or something like that. That's okay. when she appeared uh, because uh, Kitty Pride took dance lessons then. So Storm took Kitty to dance lessons, uh, and that's how Stevie appeared in the book. Gotcha. Okay, then that that explains why they didn't really focus on introducing her at all in this book. So in this one, um, the story opens with a really cool splash page that doesn't have any characters on it. Yeah. Um, it only has text interspersed with the title in these big, big, uh, these big letters. And uh, Stevie's getting some phone calls. She's being harassed by some unknown caller, but she wants to deal with it herself. Doesn't really want to involve uh, the new mutants in it at all. And uh, and throughout this book, the professor brings the kids up to speed about what's been happening over the last little while. Lalandra is is there, and I guess they're dating. But the the main point of this book is that uh, the Nubians decide to try and uh, help Stevie on their own. They kind of take matters into their own hands to figure out who this mysterious caller is, and they do a good job of of doing some detective work and figuring it out. Um, and it happens to be a boy who plays piano in one of the piano. dance studios. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So, and he is in love with Stevie, and the way he's showing it is by by harassing her over the phone, threatening her and such. He's got kind of a messed up worldview. His parents abuse him physically, mm -hmm. and because of that, he thinks that that's their way of of showing that they care because they're doing it to. Uh, to punish him to make him a better person or something like that and so but he doesn't know why it won't hurt him uh, or punish him or discipline him in any way it's it's a really moving story about uh, just about child abuse and like not knowing what's going on in people's lives they could seem perfectly normal on the outside but um, their home life is just a mess and so the kid eventually gets taken away into social services and uh, hopefully has a a happy ending, but we don't really get to see that. Yeah, it's um, a really strong issue. Oh, one thing that I forgot to mention is that um, issue three was Bob McLeod's last issue, and we have Sal Buscema yep. penciling this issue here. So let me just uh, play, before we go any further, play a quick clip 
of Bob McLeod talking about why he stepped off of the book so quickly. Yeah, well, I switched over to inking uh, because, like I said, I was so frustrated having to rush the pencils so much. I had more experience at that point as an inker, and I felt I could control the look of the book more doing the inking than I could doing the penciling. Mm -hmm. um, so I said, get me a penciler to do breakdowns for me. And um, I, I think I'd be happier with the look of the book. So they got Sal to do breakdowns. Uh, and if you know what those are, they're just kind of like layouts with no rendering or, or blacks in them. Since it was my series and um, my characters that I co-created, I felt entitled to, to change Sal's drawings to more resemble my own um, rather than worrying about trying to keep to his style in any way. Yeah, yeah, that definitely comes out. And it's, it, it made the transition, I think, from you doing pencils to inks uh, uh, quite smooth, actually. Um, I liked the collaboration between the two of you, um, but that only lasted a few issues as well. Yeah, because like I said, I, I would just I just wasn't happy with the way the book looked, yeah. and I didn't want to just be after inking him for a few issues. I just didn't want to be inking Salbusima for years. Right. Um, you know, it's my style and, and his are are quite different, and um, I wanted to do more penciling and control the look of my art uh, and have it be more my art instead of the way that was looking. I think that the the, the combination of Salbusema and Bob McLeod is really interesting because the, we get the dynamic and the classic Marvel vibe of, uh, of Salbusema and the, we keep the the neat looking inking job of uh, of Bob McLeod, who's really a terrific inker. Yeah, in fact, this issue doesn't even really look like Sal's work. It it looks like just another Bob McLeod issue because he t mm. just takes because he's the finisher. So all of the characters look like they do in the first few issues. Yeah, absolutely. It's just the layout who changes subtly and uh, looks very. Very classic, very Marvel classic, I would say. Yeah, it does. Yeah, the last thing I want to mention about this issue, and then we can move on, is that this is such a down-to-earth, small-scale story, and this is the difference between New Mutants and X-Men, is X-Men are saving the galaxy, they're flying through space or whatever. The mu New Mutants are dealing with individuals. Yeah. So I guess we are next with uh, Marvel Team-Up Annual 6. Yep which goes in between issues, really, I guess, in terms of dates and, uh, and, and publishing. What is really interesting for me as a spectacular Spider-Man reader is that this, this may be a Marvel team-up annual issue, but it feels a lot more like a, sp a spectacular Spider-Man or annual because it fits with uh, the cloak and da dagger, runaway kids and... Uh, drug experimenting subplot which was going on at the time in, uh, in Spectacular Spider-Man. It's also written by Bill Mantlo, so that's, um, that's, that's the reason why, because Mantlo was writing Spectacular at the time. Yeah. Uh, the book is drawn by Ron Friends and Kevin Zuban, which is a bit of a odd combination, really, because I, I have, I'm not really familiar with, uh, with Kevin Zuban's work. And it's early, very early, uh, Ron Trent's work and is obviously channeling Ditko a lot like he did in this 
in his first few Marvel jobs. Yeah, definitely. And page 210 is really, really Ditko, has a very clear Ditko vibe. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And the rest of, whenever Spider-Man is around, it really, it really feels uh, very Ditko-ish. The, the main story is about, so it ties with, uh, with spectacular Spider-Man and the fact that a bunch of bad guys are abducting uh, teenagers to experiments synthetic drugs on them and they kidnap uh, Wolfbane and um, uh, and uh, and Sunspot after a fight uh, in an arcade uh, in an arcade game so Sunspot and Wolfbane get abducted and Spider-Man and Cloak and Dagger plus the remaining two new mutants because Shan is not in the issue they go after them and we see uh, how these drugs are affecting kids, so some of them being murdered or killed, I would say, in the, at the beginning of the issue. And towards the end of the issue, we discover who are the guys behind the drug experiment and uh, what happens when they try those drugs on on the new mutant. So we see what happens to Wolfbane, which becomes this very scary creature as well. Uh, same thing for Sunspot. And during the final fight, the a part of the drug is transmitted to to Dagger, and uh, at the end of the day, Cloak uh, saves them all and gets all the, the negative or the, the the drug aspect or whatever was in there in their bodies and uh, and saves the day along with Spider-Man. There's a lot of stuff going on in this issue as well, but uh, we see that, uh, and it's the first time I think that it's mentioned that Cloak and Dagger may be mutants. And they they are the actually the only ones who did not die because of the drug experiment when they were injected with the drugs. It's the first time they may mention that, that they may be mutants and that may be the reason why they survived. So that's interesting. And I think that's something they, they, they carried on in uh, forthcoming appearances of, uh, of the both of them. And actually, the... There is a bit of Spidey in there, but there's not so much Spidey in in that issue. And the New Mutants and Cloak and Dagger really have the, the spotlight, in my opinion. Yeah, I appreciated this issue because I find that with Marvel Team Up and Marvel Two and One, a lot of the times it's uh the 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 plot is the hero meets another hero and mistakes that hero for a villain so they fight and then they realize they shouldn't be fighting so they team up and take down the real bad guy Mm. and um that's what happened with the marvel team up number 100 that we read earlier Uh, but in this one because cloak and dagger and spidey have a pre-existing relationship uh we don't have that problem right here Uh, so everybody is already on the same side which means they can get that pointless battle out of the way and really focus on a story so we have actually a really good story i think it's um another heavy hitting story to tell just like the the child abuse storyline that we read in the other issue this one dealing with drugs kids teenagers on on experimental drugs and the way that drug dealers target children and, and that kind of thing it's a this is a it's a little bit more out there than it is in real life, but it still rings true to stuff that actually goes on. Mm. And it's also very funny to see when the moment when Spidey meets the new mutants, because he immediately gets that there are teenagers coming to uh, just the, who just arrived to Xavier's team, and the look on uh, on Cannonball's face when he sees Spidey for the first time—it's <laughs> yeah. really, it's really funny because it's. They were in different 
part of the of the Marvel universe, then it was less of a crossoverish kind of thing. So, so they have, they had never seen him before. Yeah, he mentions that he thought he was just a myth. Yeah. So that's that's very funny, and that's those are nice touches on the, to the book. Really. Yeah, definitely. Moving right along is issue number five. It's called Heroes, and in this issue we have Viper and the Silver Samurai, and thereafter. Team America's Dark Rider, and they attack him during some sort of uh, event that they are that Team America is performing at, and uh, but the New Mutants happen to be there, so they lend a hand, and uh, um, Danny Moonstar gets kidnapped in the process, and held captive by by Viper, as well as one of the guys from Team America, so, and then I guess I don't know exactly why, but Professor Xavier feels the need to become the mentor for all of Team America as well. So he brings them into the mansion and starts training them. Um, for my, In my own opinion, this is the low point in the book, these two issues. I didn't really care Agreed. for this story at all. <laughs> it was just kind of out there. Um, and Marvel at the time was really pushing Team America. And people nowadays don't know who they are. I don't. Um, and yeah, because they're, they're just kind of a... Um, a lame concept and uh they had i think they had a mini series and they made guest appearances in all of the books at the time but but mm -hmm. it never went anywhere and i don't know what the exact purpose of team america was but they made an appearance in captain america mm -hmm. and i was talking to jm Matias about about writing that cameo and um you can listen to that interview it's one of the the ones up on the website and he said it was just forced upon him he kind of had to put him in there because they really wanted to push this team and i wonder if that was the purpose here too i forgot to ask chris about that but yeah it's not uh not the high point in this book for sure no uh, agreed and feels the same for me with with the 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 following issue really yeah. which honestly i read it and i said well I, I, it doesn't really make, make much sense because why is Shan going after her uncle to find out about Viper and Danny and uh, uh, so she gets blackmailed into joining her uncle's activities and then the book gets split in two parts with Professor X and Team America on one side uh, and then Team America retrieves what the, the, the ring or the device that uh, Viper was looking for and then the new mutants defeat Viper and Silver Samurai and rescue Danny. I think it's rather derivative. And uh, really, what is strange also about this issue is that it shows how uh, the new mutants and Professor Xavier are growing apart. And we will see that in the forthcoming issue, that we barely see Professor Xavier in the next few issues. And I, I think that during the Roman stuff, uh, we don't see him at all. Uh, right. So it's quite a shift in the in the book. Also, what is less nice about this issue, beyond the plot, which is not so great, is also the art, in my opinion, because Armando Gill and John, uh, and John Tartag did not a great job. It's more of a raw-looking issue, and the inks are obviously less good than Bob McLeod stuff. Yeah, definitely. I very much agree Not with that. Not my favorite issues. Yeah, I, I don't know exactly what went on behind the scenes. So kind of, it feels just like kind of a rush and a hodgepodge of different ideas. And it's a shame because this is the first big supervillain that the team is going up against. 
uh, hmm. Silver Samurai and Viper. And they, uh, unfortunately, it's not a compelling story. I would have loved to see their very first supervillain, like full-fledged supervillain, to be much more of a, a compelling story, but we don't get that here. Hmm. I think there are plot lines taken from Captain America and taken from Wolverine that bring these two characters together, but I'm not exactly sure what they are because there are references made to Viper's past with Captain America and Silver Samurai's past with Wolverine, but uh, nothing more than that. I would be tempted to say that maybe it ties with the Wolverine miniseries with Frank Miller. Yeah, it could. And I'm not that familiar with uh, uh, John DeMatteis, Captain America. So contrary say, but I guess that she used, Viper used to be uh, Hydra, so that's the reason why. Yeah, I think that storyline is before Demetrius's storyline, um, but yeah, I, I'm not sure about that either. But anyway, let's skip over these bad ones there. Do you have anything more to say about both of these two issues, five and six? No, not really. Okay. Let's move on. <laughs> yeah, the most important thing to know is that Shan has been taken out of the picture. She is not in the rest of this book. Yeah. That's kind of what you need to take away from those two issues. <laughs> Uh, okay, let's see here. Flying Down to Rio, issue number seven. Uh, and this is weird, too, because at the end of the last issue, the team is in the fortress that explodes, and we don't know what happens to them. Yeah. And in this book, in the next issue, we get a couple of text boxes to to show what happened in the past. My guess is that um, this issue was supposed to happen right after... Uh, issue number four but for some sort of scheduling reason or something like that or maybe because of team america um, they had to stick in an, another story right in the same place because you could take those two issues out and with the exception of shan not being there um, it makes no difference to the storyline at all nothing really happens a and maybe that's why we get the explanation in text boxes because Maybe these first pages were already finished. I know that Bob McCloud was slow in his inks, so it could be that uh, this issue was in the works, but they needed something that was done quickly uh, mm. and inserted into into that spot just to meet deadlines. And so when Chris was doing his script, he just scripted it appropriately to fit in, in place after those other two issues. That's my guess. Uh, could be, maybe not, I don't know. Uh, but... I think issue, issue six is definitely something like that because we... We have a different letter and colorist than we have on the rest of the book. Yeah, yeah, they probably so that had to looks throw like a, a rushed job. But then this issue, on the other hand, is quite excellent. We get Bob McCloud back on inks, so the style looks back um, the way it did before with Sal doing the breakdowns again, and we meet Roberto's mother. She she's come to to say hi to her son, and uh, and they eventually get taken down to Rio to visit her mansion where her dad is as well so we are where Roberto's dad is as well so we meet both of his parents there's a really awkward dinner exchange and yeah. <laughs> and then his mom is kidnapped she's abducted by guys that we recognize as being part of the like hellfire goons so the new mutants go to save her and they're confronted by this new villain Axe and because this is 1983 who does Axe remind you of? <laughs> <laughs> well, I pity the fool who doesn't recognize him. Exactly. <laughs> very. I think this is a very blatant reference. Um, I'm sure it's intentional, but uh, he's a sort of a nothing bad guy. He's just a hired thug. But the real 
twist is at the very end of the issue where we find out that Sebastian Shaw is inviting Roberto's dad, Emmanuel, into the Hellfire Club. But Emmanuel says, if you want me here, you got to prove to me that you have the resources you say you have. I want you to take out or take care of Nina, his wife, but but don't hurt her. I just want her out of the way so that I can get on with my mining expeditions that she's blocking. Sebastian Shaw tries to take care of that by hiring Axe, but it doesn't go the way they want it to. Hmm. Yeah, this is just the beginning of a multi-part story, and yep. uh, it's a good start. It's it's mostly it's a lot of character building, especially for Roberto. Uh, we see a lot of him go through a lot of different um, emotions through this issue, uh, and it's just fun. It's kind of the calm before the storm issue because things really start to mm. ramp up. I think the the, the 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 few fight pages are fantastic. Yes, the 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 layout, the combination of. Uh, Sal and Bob McLeod is, is fantastic on page uh, th- from 300 to, I would say, to the end of the story. The the, the whole fight is fantastic. Yeah, and we really get to see Roberto's temper and yep. that he, uh, he, he shouldn't be the one that has those kind of powers because he kind of lets him go a, a little crazy at times, um, a little too wild. But honestly, it's very teenager-ish, yes. I think. Very so brash and impulsive. It really works. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Issue eight called The Road to Rome. So, same team with Salvio Sema and Bob McLeod. It's the continuation of the story. So, they are now in the Amazon forest, which is interesting because there is a lot of ecological sub- subtext in, uh, in this issue about the impact of the, of the forest and so on and so forth. So, the, the mutants actually speak, the new mutant speaks with uh, Professor X, uh, who's still. Uh, training Team America for whatever reason, so they are literally in an adventure in 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 the Amazon forest, and uh, there's a lot of strange things happening with uh, on the boat and uh, uh, Danny almost being eaten by piranhas fish. They discover a young girl, a native young girl, uh, and we don't know her importance yet but we would discover that she would turn, turn out to be uh, to be magma or uh, well in, in forthcoming issues so they venture through the amazon and uh, there is a, a riot on the boat uh, the, on which they are traveling the boat crashes and they end up on a river bank and the last panel of the issue is the team being attacked by roman uh, soldiers, so really Roman from the Roman era, dressed exactly like Roman soldiers. So it's quite a change of pace because we we went from being in Rio a few the the, the issue before they travel through the Amazon forest and they end up on the on the riverbank and uh, and find uh, and being attacked by uh, those soldiers. So that's a uh, that's a very jam packed issue, uh, honestly. So. As I said, it's really interesting to see how Professor X is more interested in Team America than the New Mutants. Uh, it continues also the overall uh, Roberto's dad plot with the Hellfire Club. And uh, so the whole, just to explain that they are on a trip with uh, Roberto's mom to find a place called the Maderia, which is a lost city in the in the Amazon forest. We see the beginning in this issue. We see so the first appearance. So the native girl uh, is actually magma, uh, and we will we'll discover that she was painted 
uh, we don't know yet why she was painted and, uh, and hidden as a, as a native, and we will discover that further down the road. And we see the beginning of the subplot with Rain, well, with Wolf Bane, uh, dealing with the fact that she enjoys more being a wolf than being a human. And that is something that would go on through the rest of the, of the issues. So that's a, that's a nice character building moment. Yeah, I liked the this issue because there's no real like superhero bad guy in this one. There's a lot of mystery and um, trying to figure out who's what's going on. But at the same time, it still feels like a New Mutants book, which is nice that you can take the, I guess, the superhero out of it. And I mean, they still use their powers and such, but um, it's such a, it's such just on a small scale that it seems more normal than the stuff that the X-Men deals with. I mentioned that before. And and so what I like about this is just the the, the suspense that it builds with the ship going over, slowly over the waterfall. And yeah, it's just a well well-written book. I just, all of these issues, Chris Claremont is, is at the top of his game here with the New Mutants and, and, uh, and, and X-Men at the same time. There's one clip that I want to play before we move on to the next issue of Chris Claremont talking about this whole Nova Roma uh, storyline, and uh, I'll play that here. Well, my approach to structuring series is part forethought, part inspiration. It's you, one tries to, okay, what, 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 are we, what are we doing next? We're going to South America. What happens in South America? Well, we're going to run into ancient Incas. What happened? What's with the ancient Incas? Well, we have ancient Romans, huh? <laughs> well, because the whole idea there was to introduce Selene as their one of the, the team's primo villains to uh, update the Hell, Hellfire Club. So it, part of it is inspir, as I said, part is inspiration, part is planning. All of the Nova Roma stories were structured around Sal's art, and uh, to a certain extent, Joan Brigman. And again, my visual of that was to, to come up with a concept of Nova Roma that was a synergy, a synthesis of ancient Roman and ancient Incan cultures. Unfortunately, what ended up on paper was primarily um, classic Rome right. in the Andes. Okay, in the next issue, it's issue number nine. It's called Arena. The new mutants are taken into New Rome, Nova Roma, and uh, they're held prisoner. The boys are forced to battle in a gladiator arena um, in typical Roman fashion. If we have any sort of Roman storyline, we have to have a gladiator arena battle. It seems to be kind of standard for comic books. (laughs) Um, And then at the end of the issue, Rain is declared... Um, a descendant of Julius Caesar because she has red hair and also because she turns into a wolf. Um, I guess there's something in ancient Roman history. A wolf ties into one of their gods or something like that. I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but... Uh, it's mentioned in the, at the beginning of, uh, of uh, issue 10. Uh, so Romulus and Remus, which were the founders of the ancient Rome, were fed by a wolf if I remember well. So they were breastfed, that's the word, I think, Oh yeah. by, by wolves. So they, they, they were little kids and they were saved by, the, by this wolf. Okay. And that's the reason why the lupus 
or the wolf is the animal that represents Rome. And that's the reason why Wolfbane gets identified as a sort of uh, godlike creature. Yeah, So, but this is all a ruse. Senator Marcus Gallio is kind of the main bad guy in this, but he's trying to pin a lot, a lot of the stuff that's going on in this other guy, Senator Aquila, who happens to be Amara or Magma's father. Uh, and so the New Mutants think that they are on on the senator's side, Senator Gallio's side. Um, but uh, through the course of the story, they realize that maybe they're not on the right side. We're also introduced to Celine in this issue, who plays an important mm. role um, coming up and also down the line. She is the lover of of the senator, and uh, we don't really know much about her in this issue. Um but we will soon find out, that's for sure. The, the, the thing is that it's really, it's really a, a Roman story because, you know, whenever you're talking about Julius Caesar and stuff like that, there's always a senator trying to plot behind <laughs> yeah. the scenes and trying to take over. So right. it really feels like the, the Roman story by definition. So it really works like that. But the twist is that there is something more, and that's the part that plays that that Celine plays in the story. So that's really interesting because it could have been just your your average Roman story, but there is more to it. Yeah. So issue ten, we have a change in the finishing work because Tom Mandrake takes over the inking job. It's a very dense story. Uh, it continues the the, the the overall Roman plot. Uh, so Rain is being treated like a godlike creature. So the, the whole plot with the senator trying to take over or become emperor and so on continues. There is a really, really, really weird moment in that issue, in my opinion, uh, which is on page 360 when this kind of servant girl uh, asks uh, Roberto if she can hear his <laughs> sadness, which is so weird uh, and definitely not something you would say to a 13 year old kid yeah a little awkward yeah that's really strange towards the issue so the whole plot continues and we discover that Celine is using young girls and throws them into a fire pit to get their life uh, life essence so that she keeps on being young because apparently she's uh, well she's a life vampire Sort right. of. Yeah. Or the more that she and, uses her powers as well, the the more yeah. of her youth is, is sucked out of her. So that's why she needs to have regular young girl being throw, thrown into the pit so that she gets the, the life essence. And at the end of the issue, Amara is, is sent into the lava and it somehow triggers her powers and she becomes the magma character So who will uh, later on join the team. There's a cool design on Magma. I like how the way that they yeah. just draw the, the swirling yellow around her without giving any sort of details on the inside of her, her body other than just the outline. Um, mm. It's a, a neat way to portray that. Yeah, this is, like you said, this is where the plot really gets uh, quite dense. Uh, they're just kind of setting the scene here um, between the two senators who are kind of at odds and trying to figure out who's who's at fault here, who's blaming who. And we have a pretty good idea based on our d being outside of the story about what's really mm. going on, but um, the kids don't at this point. 
Oh, and the other thing to say is Roberto has found uh, someone who he thinks is his mother, um, who hasn't yeah. actually died in the water, but is uh, also being held prisoner here in Nova Roma. And we see the guy also who was in the boat and who was running the riot on the boat, uh, getting into the game as well. Yeah, so a lot of things uh, going on leading up to this big conclusion, which is issue number 11. And in this issue, it's just called Magma. Um, yeah, Magma's mutant powers manifest after she has been thrown into the volcano. And then, yeah, Roberto discovers his mother is alive and that Galio is working with his father to take over Nova Roma so they can mine all the resources out of it because it's sort of an untouched area of the world. This is a, a great conclusion. There is so much going on here. A big battle between uh, Celine and uh, Moonstar and Magma. A lot of stuff going on there. Roberto takes matters into his own hands and rescues his his mother and confronts the guy who his father's working with and uncover this plot and, and have a battle with the, the other senator and save Magma because she's doesn't know what she's doing. There's just so much going on here. Um, <clears throat> but, and it's exciting. And the, the, the climax, partway through uh, the issue here, Magma wants Wolfsbane to kill Selene, but Cannibal says, Amara, don't. That's not the way. We're not killers. But at the very <clears throat> end, Roberto picks up Selene and throws her into the lava, effectively killing her. And he doesn't care. He says that that's what needed to be done. She deserved it. And he... He, yeah, he is very, very hardened by it. And so that's uh, the defining moment here, I think, in his character um, that leads to some changes in, in the way he deals with things down the road. Starting with the next issue. Actually. Starting with the next, very next issue. Yeah, mm. yeah. Did you like this issue, this this whole storyline? Yeah, um, I think it's, it, it's really fascinating how Clermont can lay out his work and make it all tie together in the end because you can see that it's building and there are some subtle touches appearing all through the throughout the, the storyline and uh, and it's building in the right direction and the, the, the ending delivers something which is very very powerful so it's superbly written in my opinion yeah it all comes together really well it is not the most yeah. well-known new mutant story but yeah, like you said, all the threads, there are so many different threads going on and they all come together for a mm. great climax. Yeah, it just is a, a testament to Chris Claremont's writing ability here. Yeah, because it's juggling with all these balls and there's only one who drops actually. It's the fact that Professor X is absolutely nowhere to be found uh, <laughs> yeah. and it's supposed to teach those kids how to use their powers. So that's the, that's the, the, the origin of the book. And uh, it doesn't deliver that, but otherwise it's very well written. Yeah, I think that, um, and I wonder if he just wanted to remove Xavier so that they would be forced to learn on their own to, to give that new aspect of the training. Mm, possibly. Yeah, I'll have to, we'll have to see how volume two plays out uh, when you put it in context with volume one, um, mm. because they return back to the mansion Yeah, and we'll see what happens there. I haven't read all of those issues. I've only read, I think, the Demon Bear saga. So mm. we'll have to, yeah. Well, well which see. which is right after because it's uh, it's uh, six issues afterwards because it starts with uh, issue eighteen, I think. Right. Okay. Our last part. So th this is a th this is a strange issue because it ties with the, the it sort of ties and concludes the the, the storyline with the with the Nova Roma thing, 
Uh, it also ties with the El Fire Club and um, Roberto's father joining the, the inner circle of the, the El Fire Club and the confrontation between the two. And at the same time, part of the story takes place in flashback because we can see what happened at the end after Sidin is killed or dies seemingly and why Magma joins the team and why Amara is leaving Nova Roma in order to learn how to use her powers. And then we we see the continuation of the reign, uh, unlike being a wolf more than a human subplot. And we see what happens. What is really interesting in that issue is we see what happens when Amara unleashes her powers in the center of the city, and uh, she doesn't know how to use her powers, so she completely uh, freaks out and does a lot of damage and. Uh, it's obvious that she needs help and she needs support. And when she unleashes her powers and uh, uh, does a lot of damage, she gets rescued by a bunch of kids and a very poor family in the um, in the, the in the Rio uh, suburbs. And the new mutants get her, and she almost dies because of her eating powers and. Uh, they, the mutants save the new mutant save the day by using ice to restore her to a proper body temperature. So there's a lot of stuff happening there, and there's a lot of subplots happening, and a lot of uh, uh, consolidation of the stuff that has been uh, happening. But for me, this, this story doesn't work so well, in my opinion, because it goes in several directions. It's quite hard to follow, and it really builds up to the last 10, 15 pages uh, with the, the, the Amara being uh, wild and uh, uh, and then being saved at the end by the, by the mutants. So it's a bit of a nut job. Yeah, this whole, this whole thing just does seem like an epilogue for the story, for sure. I liked mm-hmm. how Amara, she again brings another new aspect uh, to, to the team not just uh not just a from a different country but from a different time so mm. like, she's not used to technology she's not used to just anything that the the way the world works so you have this fish out of water um aspect to her character so while she may be caucasian um she doesn't uh, and she's actually just half caucasian cuz she's half inca as well um, but uh she also has this secondary layer of an international aspect to her to her story the, the thing the thing about these is that they are just uh good solid stories roberto talking to his dad for several pages yeah. it was quite compelling like the the dialogue and south layouts just uh kept kept it going even though it's just a conversation it was still quite exciting but it feels more like bits and pieces of story mixed together gelled together rather than uh, an overall story yeah, There's, there may be too much going on there. What was interesting here is that also that um, Shan is not mentioned at all in the very beginning. First ah. few issues of the Nova Roma stuff, they were like, "Well, we got to get out of here so we can go look for Shan." Or how come we're not looking for Shan? But now they aren't even talking about her. <laughs> so mm. um, I don't know what's going on. Uh, I don't know what's going on there. And I haven't read enough New Mutants to know where Shan's storyline's going. So don't tell me. I want to be surprised. No, I can't remember, actually. <laughs> okay. So I read that ages ago. Then we will be surprised together in a future volume. Mm. 
We are running out of time here. I want to try and keep this episode to under two hours, and we're almost at that mark. And we still have four yeah. issues to deal with. So I think maybe, if it's okay with you, we can talk about yeah. the Magic miniseries all together as one, rather than dividing it up into four issues. Is that okay with you? Yeah, works for me. Let me give a, a, um, a brief overview of this miniseries. So like we mentioned before in X-Men 160, Ileana is pulled into limbo by Belasco, and the X-Men try to save her, but they can't. But then a second later, she reappears. She's no longer seven. She's 14 years old. She's a completely different person, and no one knows why she's like that. Now, I'm going to play a clip of Chris Claremont talking about uh, this magic miniseries. Was it always your intention to to spin it off into a limited series and expand it further? I think it was six and one half of the other. I, I think that, uh, again, Weezy felt we needed to explain what happened. Okay. So you, you were just going to leave it hanging? Well, I was going to do it in, in terms of suggestions. But again, the thing, the problem or the challenge with Ileana was always, is she really a good guy or a bad guy? Right. Forgive the sexism of the phrase. She spent her entire life, basically, half her life, the formative half of her life, dancing around Belasco in, in limbo. And she is now Lord, ruler of limbo, which is not a nice place. Right. And the thing, you know, the thing we keep coming back to, and again, this was, this was where, for me, having Magneto as head of the School for Gifted Youngsters was a much more relevant and interesting direction than Charlie because they walk similar paths. Ileana, when she manifests her powers, looks evil because the powers are all evil. She faces the temptation of corruption on a, on a moment by moment basis, as does he. So I did a story where at the end of it, she can't face the kids because They'll see her as she really is, and she, she can't bear that because she, like any kid, wants to be accepted. So magic number one through four takes place in that split second when she disappears and then reappears, and it ends up being um, a, a long time, uh, seven years of magic's life. She is rescued um, in limbo by an alternate version of Storm and Kitty, and in their alternate reality, um, it's the X-Men who are pulled into limbo and Ileana's not pulled into limbo. And so they are the ones who are spending um, half of their lives or most of their lives, I guess, in limbo. Most of the X-Men have been killed. Uh, Storm and Kitty are the only two left. And Nightcrawler. Oh, and Nightcrawler too. Oh, yeah, that's right. Nightcrawler is mm. one of Belasco's lackeys. And uh, but Storm has become a powerful sorceress, and Kitty has sort of Belasco's turned her into sort of a more feral version, like given her some cat-like uh, qualities mm. and that kind of stuff. But they are teaching Ileana how to survive in limbo with by uh, teaching her magic and teaching her survival skills. But Storm and Kitty ha have a different opinion of how things should be dealt with, so they sort of split and Kitty takes Ileana away, tries to get her home, but uh, Belasco stops him and turns her into a 
way more of a cat-like person so that she can't mm. really even talk anymore um, becomes um, Belasco's unwilling slave and turns Ileana into his apprentice and starts teaching her the dark arts and she grows in power and starts to enjoy it and that scares her so she tries to get away but she can't and eventually she, uh, ends up killing Storm in an attempt to save her from Belasco uh, and, Bela and, it, and in retaliation, Belasco sends her, um, exiles her to some uh, winter wilderness where she spends five years and then realizes her potential and takes down Belasco and sends herself home using her light circles, which is her mutant power of teleportation, and mm -hmm. gets back home. That's the gist of it. Uh, there's a lot more that goes on. They flesh out a lot more, of course. Tell me your thoughts on this miniseries, Frank. Okay, here's a personal story. This story actually gave me nightmares. Oh, okay. I ha yeah, because I read that when I was teenager, and it gave me nightmares, because I, I thought it was a really scary story. Yeah, well, I mean, Limbo is essentially hell, It's and Belasco's the devil. Like, it's, it's a very obvious parallel there, and they deal with yeah. demons and magic and, and killing, and who is the good guy? Who is the bad guy? We don't really know in the end yeah i can i can see that yeah absolutely in fact what, what i find because i've read uncanny x-men 160 again before reading magic and now that i've heard the clip from chris claremont saying that it was an exercise that he had to do i think that it feels a bit that way it feels a bit like the story uh was maybe a two-parter that grew into a miniseries Huh. Because I think that it drags on a bit. And there's a lot of things happening which are just another way of presenting what was initially in Uncanny X-Men 160. Like the the fate of the, the other X-Men uh, and so on. So this yeah. goes on and on. And uh, it would have been a great two-parter for any book. But I think it goes along a bit too long. Uh, even though it's only four issues. But at the same it's also interesting to see how Indiana develops into this limbo, uh, how she deals with the fact that she uh, she wants to escape, and in order to escape, she has to get rid of Belasco. But killing Belasco means to become like him, so she finds this kind of in-between acceptable situation in the end uh, where she's strong enough to escape, but not she doesn't go too far into killing and becoming uh, more of a devilish creature. Yeah. So that's an interesting aspect. I also like that Chris Claremont is able to tell a nice complete story with a start and a finish, but also plant seeds for an ongoing story because we only have two of the blood or three of the bloodstones and we don't mm -hmm. know what's going to happen after the other two are there to complete the, the little amulet that she wears. So um, they they keep they keep you coming back for more in that sense. It's funny it ties with the New Mutants uh, book because there is one scene I think it's in issue four where uh, Iliana jumps between uh, dimensions and ends up uh, meeting the New Mutants who and and bumps to their, their their car. So that that that's nice. That's also the link 
to the fact that she would join the team later on. And also, it, what is really interesting about this series, this miniseries, is the work, in my opinion, of, of Tom Palmer. Because we have three different artists on four issues. And I think that the, the, the work done by Tom Palmer gets it all together, and it really looks similar, even though we have three different artists. So we have John Buscema for the first two issues, and then we have Ron Friends for one, and Sal Buscema for the, for the final one. And even though we have four different artists, it looks quite the same and uh, in the same spirit. Uh, so that's the importance of uh, the look and feel that a good finisher can give to a book. I think people assume that inkers simply... Are just traces. Yeah, you know, they just they just um, blacken out the lines that the penciler puts down. But no, they they do Definitely a lot not. of work to, to establish the tone and the look of a book. And if you have a really good inker like Tom Palmer or like Bob McLeod, like we saw in the other issues... Um, they can take many different uh, artists and give the whole thing a consistency like we see here. This is a perfect example of that. And yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Mm. I, I was wondering about the inclusion of this miniseries in this New Mutants volume, because I was like, it's a story that spins out of X-Men. So why wouldn't it be in an X-Men epic collection instead of this one? But there are arguments for both, especially because she eventually joins the New Mutants. So th uh, that's a a good introduction to her character to be in this book here. Um, and, it's, and like with the New Mutants cameo, like you said, but mm. and but but because the main characters are Storm and Shadowcat, uh, it could easily be in, included in the X-Men book as well. It is actually in the third Uncanny X-Men omnibus. Oh, okay. Is it in the Masterworks? No, no, no. I don't think it's in the Masterworks because it would be... It, it, it was a there was a dedicated hardcover edition for that. Oh, okay. So, which is because you see the cover reprinted in the last page of the of the epic collection. Okay. And uh, so, but it's on the third uh, Uncanny X Men omnibus, along with the Wolverine miniseries with Frank Miller and Chris Claremont. So I wonder if we will see this miniseries pop up in an Uncanny X Men epic collection as well. Don't know really. Yeah, we'll have to find out. It makes less sense, in my opinion, because it doesn't really tie with uh, Uncanny X-Men as a book. It, it, it ties in with 160. I mean, she goes away and she comes back. Yeah. And if you don't have the miniseries, mm. then you'll never know what happened to her. If you are only collecting True. the X-Men epic collections, you'll never know what happened to her in that storyline. Mm. So I don't know. It's uh, There's arguments for both, but we'll see what happens. We'll see what Marvel decides to do yeah. in that sense. I think this is the another argument for including it in this book is that the the first few issues that are going to be in volume two have to deal with Sim and Belasco, so this is an in introduction to those characters as well because we're going to immediately face them with the new mutants at the beginning of volume two. Well, and that brings us to the the end of this book. Yeah. What are your opinions on this whole volume, Frank? Well, it's a nice book. Uh, well, as I said. Uh, 520 pages is quite quite a big book, so it's well worth spending money on it. The art overall is very good. The stories are very coherent, so that's very nice. We see a few uh, bonus pages also in the book, which which are very good, like some character designs by Bob McLeod, which are really really great looking. Yes. Not so much stuff added, uh, except for an odd thing, the letter column from issue 11, which was Assistant Editor's Month, but 
Fortunately, issue 11 doesn't go into the silly kind of thing that uh, Assistant uh, Editors Month did <laughs> right. the other books. Yeah. Uh, and we have a few covers being reprinted, mostly Marshall Rogers' work, which is always nice to see, plus some Adam Hughes' recreation or new cover for a, a reprint in the 90s of the original graphic uh, novel. So not so many bonuses, but there's so much stuff to read there that you don't really need bonuses. Right. It's so densely packed that they couldn't fit anything more in if, even if they wanted to. No, I don't think so. Yeah. yeah. The binding would have given away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is this brings us to our conclusion then. Thanks, Frank, for walking us through this volume and being a part of the show. Appreciate that. My pleasure.